Good morning. All right, we're, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm giving a little bit of a pause to get the hot out of the mic. I don't know if you can hear it. It feels like it might explode. All right, so every time I preach, my hope is that the Spirit of God would move and do things that I could never accomplish, no matter how well I preach. Last, last week, Jared preached a sermon about that very thing, that Christ and Him crucified would be the thing that is most clearly communicated, that Christ would be exalted, that we would be humble, that we'd be more dependent on the Spirit than we were when we came into this place. We'd repent of our sin, that, that unbelief would be cast out as we're filled with belief, that knowledge would would become some understanding that's deeper than just understanding logistically how something works, but an understanding that is profound and eternal. And all of that has to be done by the work of the Spirit. And then the hope is the church would be united, and then we'd be sent out, and then we would be about the work of our King in in all the earth. That's our hope. But often the case is that we are distracted by many things, like dimming lights and hot mics and the smacky sound of my voice because I need water. All those things happen right now. I don't know if you notice. But as we read the Word of God and trust the Spirit to be able to overcome all the things that make us anxious, to to reach the depths of our heart as He knows the depths of his, His own, then we have wisdom, then we have clarity. So Paul has just spent some time talking about how we can't rely on the wisdom of the world and that's never going to get you anywhere. He's bashing wisdom and then he's, then he's about to say, but we do impart wisdom. So we have some questions to ask, some things to work through. And as usual, I want to walk through this passage of Scripture verse by verse if we can and try to unpack some truth, trusting the Spirit to be at work, that the lost would be saved that we'd be more dependent on the Spirit, and that we would unify ourselves around something much better than than any method or any wisdom of man. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to read straight through 6 6 through 16, and then we'll break it up a little bit. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age, who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who loved him. This, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, 
interpreting spiritual truths so to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I pray that you would assure us in this moment that it is truth, the only truth we can stand firmly upon, this objective truth that gives life, that sometimes cuts deep, but only to repair. We thank you for Jesus and him crucified. This means for our salvation. And we thank you for the spirit that gives understanding that we could know what this salvation means. I pray that you would help us this morning as we seek to discern what this means for us today. Help me as I proclaim truth. Anything I would say that is not truth, God, I pray that it would just land and be void. But the things that are true, that give life, that spur us on to greater things, that give us a greater dependence on the Spirit, that unites us as a church, and that might save the lost, I pray that we cling to these truths. Your Spirit empower us and enable us in every way to go out and proclaim these truths. All for your glory, for the kingdom, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so in Corinth, there are all kinds of divisions in the church. There's a lot of heresy being taught, a lot of things misunderstood, misinterpreted, and a lot of people thinking they know it all, feeling arrogant about their knowledge, their understanding, their philosophies. And these divisions in the church exist, and and I think the same is true today. Uh, I'm convinced that divisions in the church exist less because people believe false things and more so because we wrongly apply or or disproportionately believe true things. Does that make sense? That our secondary truths we're, we're making primary. So there's disproportion in how we believe what's true and what's not true. And that's evident in all kinds of ways. But to give you some examples, as Paul is seeking to make the main thing the main thing, in our culture today, we overemphasize reaching the lost, which sounds odd. But if we exalt reaching the lost over the cross itself, then we run the risk of becoming a seeker-sensitive church, light in the gospel, staying away from discussing sin because it makes people uncomfortable. And we want to be really attractional, like the world, So we can draw people to ourselves. And we innately say there's nothing wrong with wanting lost people to be saved. We want to reach the lost. Let's do everything we can to reach the lost. I think innately that's true, but we must be careful not to disproportionately weigh that out. If we overemphasize right behavior, then we become moralistic deists. We believe there's a God, but he's kind of distant. He's not in charge of salvation. We are. So we have to do all these right things, change our behavior, and then we can somehow find ourselves worthy of salvation, and we have this very distorted view of grace. Now, whereas right behavior is not wrong to emphasize, if we overemphasize it, we end up a place we shouldn't be. And if we overemphasize spiritual things, we have a, a hyper-charismatic movement that is overly, overly spiritualized in a way that removes itself from context and, in fact, appears to be really weird, if anything else, to the world that watches. And it's very difficult then 
to reach anyone with this weird theology that's all about feeling good and not about Christ and Him crucified. If we overemphasize well-being, health, and wealth, then we get prosperity gospel. Life's all about living your best life now, as if there isn't this something after life that hopefully is better than life now. And then, of course, if we overemphasize doctrine, we get fat-headed hyper-Calvinists who have this ironic arrogance about them when the very thing they're arrogant about should humble them and we should see Christ in the center of it all. So it's not so much those things are wrong, but they're very much man-centered and not cross-centered. So what we have is these desires of the flesh to be satisfied. Give me what I want. Give me what makes me feel good. Help me know more so that I can feel satisfied in my knowledge and feel content in my salvation because of logic and reason and philosophy and even method. And so it's not to say this church has it figured out because we see that and we're not going to make any of those, those mistakes. The question then becomes, what are we overemphasizing? Are we fixed on Christ and Him crucified? Because that is the wisdom that Paul is talking about. When at the center of our faith is Christ and the cross, it becomes a symbol of humility. And then it becomes foolish to everyone else. Why would you boast in the cross? Why would you boast in humility? It's foolish. But that's the wise thing to do, is Paul's point. So this is wisdom, and this is what it, what it matters. Let's walk through this passage. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. So right away, Paul's using this word mature. And no doubt it's significant and intentional, but it's also probably a little bit sarcastic because for the Corinthians, they're boasting in their maturity. We're so spiritually mature. We're wise. We're knowledgeable. We've got it together. So Paul is saying, well, for the mature, we do impart wisdom. What you have is not wisdom. What you have is not maturity. For the mature, we do impart wisdom. Paul's teaching to a lack of understanding that these philosophers are dismissing his idea of wisdom as foolish. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. So human wisdom may change from culture to culture throughout generations. It changes even from year to year or day to day in the technology era. What's wise, what's right, what's cool, all that changes and it's going to keep changing. Paul's point is, whatever it is, whatever you're declaring to be wisdom, it's not what I'm talking about. There's a different kind of wisdom. And as for these rulers, these authorities who sets the status quo, it may be humans, it may be demonic activity, whatever the case, these rulers already have their end written out. They're doomed to pass away. So I don't know where you guys seek your wisdom. Maybe it's a self-help book. I don't know. Uh, there's a lot of self-help books out there. Maybe it's Oprah or Dr. Phil, if he's still relevant. I don't know. He's on TV still. I don't know if it's, it's ancient philosophers or modern philosophers or living theologians or dead theologians. Whatever you're reading to find your wisdom, scrolling through Instagram and Facebook, your personal experience, whatever it is, the point is, none of that compares to the wisdom that Paul's about to unpack. So set it aside and let's see what true wisdom is. 
Verse 7, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed. Now, this decreeing that God does is predetermining. This, in fact, the word could be translated predestined, and it is translated that elsewhere, which God predestined before the ages for our glory, that we would be glorified in eternal salvation. That's what we're talking about. He predestined something before the ages for our glory. That's our glorification. That's the eventual outcome of salvation at work in our lives. The secret here is the means to salvation. And that's referring back to the cross, Christ and him crucified. So this secret wisdom is not hidden from us. I just told you what it was. This secret wisdom is not hidden from anyone in Christ, but there's something beyond it. So Ephesians 1, 9 through 10, Paul talks about this grace, making, making known to us the mystery of his will, of God's will, according to his purpose, which he, he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. That's this mystery, Ephesians 1, 9 through 10. Also in Ephesians 3, 8, 9, He's talking about preaching. It's unsearchable riches of Christ. That's the mystery. And to bring it to light for everyone, what is the plan of the mystery hidden from ages in God who created all things? So it's evident it's not hidden for those in Christ. We preach it. We receive it by grace. The mystery is no longer a mystery. It's not a secret. It's not hidden. We know about it. It's salvation. It's the means by which we're saved. This mystery is the gospel message for all people, a plan for salvation for all people. The Lord has predetermined it. And the definitive passages on predestination in the New Testament, you can write them down and read them later. Romans 8, 28 through 30 mainly, Romans 9, all of it, and Ephesians 1, namely 3 through 14. These are the most direct passages in the New Testament on salvation and each of them in their own way very obviously stress God's sovereignty in salvation. He is totally in control of all things, including human history and specifically human salvation. Before anything was, God wove into the, the timeline of, of human history what everything that was and everything that will be a plan of redemption. This plan isn't arbitrary and it's not selective. It's based on the sovereignty of God, his foreknowledge. Not only is it based on his foreknowledge and his sovereignty, it's, it's based on his character. He's loving, he's merciful, he's graceful, he's just, he's righteous. And in, in all that, beyond what we can comprehend, God has chosen to change us. To change us. To give us understanding by his spirit. By grace. He's given it to us so that more and more of his children would come to know, to hear, to see the power of the gospel to save and respond accordingly with faith in Christ and his cross. This is good news. It makes me excited, at least. God, before anything was, has planned all of this out for our good, that we could be glorified. Knowing that we could never deserve it, knowing that we could never earn it, he planned it all out for us. And by his spirit, we have an understanding of what exactly that means. This has always been the plan. Since before the foundations of the world, the plan was in place that mankind would fall astray 
Search for salvation everywhere else. Never find it. And Jesus would step into time. And he would give himself up on a cross, perfectly, having perfectly demonstrated what it looks like to submit all of life to the Holy Spirit. He submitted all of himself to the Spirit. He was led, fully dependent in all of his life to the Spirit of God and fully obedient to everything the Father has ever proclaimed. He demonstrated it perfectly for us, also known as sinless. He lived his life. The only one innocent, our Messiah, became sin on a cross that we might become the righteousness of God. He was crucified. He was buried. He was resurrected, leaving sin in the grave that we could find freedom in the gospel. That once and for all, we would find freedom from sin. No longer ashamed, no longer anxious, free, lifted. The power of sin no longer exists for the believer. The penalty of our sin no longer exists for the believer. And one day, Praise God, the presence of sin currently affecting our lives will no longer be here. We'll be glorified, delivered. This is the gospel. This is the the secret that's been revealed by the work of the Spirit. And our predestination into this reality is not a personal privilege. It's nothing you've earned. You can never deserve it. Rather, it is a covenantal responsibility. You've been saved from sin and to service to the king, to the glory of our king you live your life. Every day you sacrifice yourself. You pick up your cross because it's the center of it all and you follow the king. He has set the plan in motion and we are caught up in it. Verse 8. Though that is the plan, none of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory, the one who's brought all of this into being. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. So did you catch this? The Lord has worked it, worked it out in a way that no human being could ever imagine, ever write up, ever create. No matter how much we sat and pondered, we can never imagine this. Yet by grace, through faith, through the work of the Spirit, what was once unknowable is now known to us. An important note in verse 9, this is for those who love God. It's important, especially for the Corinthians, because they're all about knowledge, not affection. That's weak. But ironically, knowing God is achieved through loving Him. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, that's philosophy or morality, it's also called the Spirit of slavery in Romans 8 but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So the Holy Spirit is our only means for understanding the things of God. Not just knowing, like, like logically lining it out or, or walking through it, because obviously whether you're Christian or not, I gave you the gospel so you, could, you know it now, you understand it probably, but this understanding is something beyond that. The Spirit has done something supernatural. I hope you understand 
your salvation is supernatural. We talk about it. It's not about what you know. It's about what you believe. We talk about it. But what you believe is out of your control. It's supernatural. The work of the Holy Spirit. I know it's difficult for a lot of Baptists to understand. It's a work of the Spirit. I was raised in a charismatic church. And when I came to ULM, I joined the Baptist Collegiate Ministry because it was the biggest ministry there was. And I became very Baptist. And I got stuck. I love so much about the Baptist church. But what I noticed right away is the Trinity is the Father, the Son, and the Scriptures. Often the Spirit's left out. But we're hopeless without Him. That's what Paul's trying to make clear to these people who are a lot like Baptists. Our salvation is supernatural. Just let it sink in. The only reason you're a Christian is because the Spirit of God has done something supernatural. It should be freeing for you to consider that. That means it's not on you to maintain it. The Spirit has sealed you. Romans 11, 33 and 34. Oh, the depths, the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? We have because of the Spirit. Because only the Spirit knows the mind of the Lord. You cannot know the depths of salvation apart from the Spirit. So how do we live a life that's saturated by the gospel? How do we live a life saturated, filled with, filled to the brim with this gospel? Complete dependence on the supernatural work of the Spirit. The Spirit enables us to understand and empowers us to obey. It is true that in our fallen state, as finite beings, even as believers, we can't fully exhaustively know God, but we know and understand everything needed for salvation. Through the revelation of the Father, that's His Word, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, and by the illumination of the Spirit. This God, Trinity, working as one because He is one God to bring about our salvation. If we express gratitude for the gift of the Son for salvation. We often do this. We thank God for Jesus because we're saved by Jesus. If we express gratitude for the Son, I believe we should no less express gratitude for the Spirit to help us understand salvation. The Holy Spirit brings light, truth, and salvation. And the Spirit of this world brings only darkness and deception. So there's things that appear to be light and death. There are brilliant philosophers in hell right now. It doesn't matter how much wisdom you obtain in this world. It doesn't matter if you devote your life to studying wisdom. There are brilliant men and women burning for eternity and they're under the wrath of God because they had a wisdom that was unlike the wisdom Paul is describing. So we, the believers, impart these truths that we gain by the Spirit. There's no way for us to know who the Lord is or who He's called us to be Unless we have the Spirit. Verse 13. So we have, we have a hope that is sure. We have a joy that is eternal. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So that means. So for us, we don't know who's going to be a Christian and who's not. We don't know who the Lord has called and who the Lord has not called. We do know The Lord saves and only the Lord saves. And we do know that the gospel should be proclaimed to all people and all nations, every tribe, every tongue. So we live our lives devoted to, as believers, proclaiming truth 
to everybody. It's helpful if we consider everyone our long-lost brother or sister, and if only they knew the love of the Father, they would return home. So my encouragement to you is evangelize, evangelize, evangelize. However, don't just share information. Know that the Spirit of God is the one in charge of salvation. So love people. In whatever way you can, love people and then give them a reason for the, for the way you love them. Explain to them why you love them. That's evangelism. You only can love them because God has loved you. You only sacrifice because Christ has sacrificed himself. All that you are is, is by the Spirit. All that you do is by the Spirit. So love your neighbor. Love your coworkers. Love your classmates. Love the waiter or waitress when you go to lunch today. Love people And then every opportunity you get, give them a reason for that love. Share Christ. We evangelize with the hope that hearing the gospel, the Spirit would move and work in the heart of the unbeliever and give belief. But we know the reality is verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually Discern. So this is not about ignorance or intellectual ability. It's about the capacity of the human being to comprehend spiritual truth, or rather the lack thereof. We don't possess the ability to comprehend what's true unless the Spirit moves. Blind men can't see. They're blind. Deaf men can't hear. They're deaf. Dead men can't get up and walk because they're dead. <laughs> it's not complicated. The natural man cannot comprehend because everything needed for salvation can only be comprehended by the Spirit. So, we must depend on the Spirit for our own salvation and the salvation of others. It says here, the things of the Spirit, that is the wisdom we impart, that is the gospel, is folly to the natural man. So it's foolishness to the world. The wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. Paul writes about this elsewhere, and and even in this chapter, as we heard last week. But I think that it's important that we hear the word rightly. It's foolish to the unbeliever. And in some places, we see that the world is hostile towards the gospel. So So there is a sense in which they don't want to hear it. However, that does not mean it's bad news. Because the gospel is always good news. So I think we we, we can't put a word there that doesn't belong. We must do everything as much as it depends on us to contextualize this good news so that the hearer can hear it as good news. That means it it doesn't get received by everyone the same way you received it. What was good news to you about the gospel isn't necessarily what's going to be good news to someone else about the gospel. I hope that makes sense. So ask yourself, what is good news about the gospel? Write it out, as many things as you can. Why is it good news? And what's good news about the gospel for your context, your missional community? What's good news to Jack Hayes or to Parkview or to the Oaks? What's good news to your neighborhood? Think about your specific neighbor. You have to know them. Step one. What's their story? And then consider what, what would be good news to them about the gospel? 
What makes the gospel good news to an atheist family member? What makes the gospel good news to a heathenistic classmate? What makes the gospel good news to a Muslim or to a Jew or to someone in poverty or to the rich or to the highly educated or to the high school dropout or to the marginalized or to the celebrity or to the moralist or to the Baptist or to the preacher? What makes the gospel good news to you? Is the gospel good news to you? Our witness is demonstrated. It's not, it's not performed. It's not perfected. It's not presented. Our witness to the world is demonstrated by our belief that the gospel is good news. And then we love one another. And we sacrifice for each other. And we serve. We set ourselves aside. We put the flesh to death because the gospel is good news. We cling to the good news. Verse 15, the spiritual person judges all things. So it's, it's through the gospel lens, through gospel fluency, with gospel foundation, with wisdom that we examine the methods of the world, the tactics, the ways of the world. So the spiritual person judges all things, but he himself, or but is himself to be judged by no one. So that's not to say that there is this spiritual elite person that cannot be questioned. It means no one can judge or understand the believer by worldly means. There isn't a category for the work of the gospel. It cannot be comprehended by the world. So no one can judge and condemn your works if you are living out of the gospel because there's, there's not a means for that. They don't possess the ability to do that. Without the spirit, the fallen world engages in all sorts of speculation and slander and and creates myths and, and even is demonically inspired, false truths are proclaimed. But the world, with all its religion and all its philosophy, cannot comprehend the wisdom of God. It can give its best guess, and that's why we have some religions that sound right. That sounds pretty good. This guy seems pretty peaceful. Every time I meet a Buddhist, I'm like, Buddhists are so peaceful. How, how can that be? I don't know. They got some things right, maybe. But they're missing the essentials. And I believe that not only are there some really brilliant men throughout history who've created philosophies and religions that sound right, but there's also a lot of demonic activity. And Satan has used everything against the church that he can to mislead and deceive and condemn and destroy and kill as many people as he can. And so there are, there are entire world religions that I believe are written by demons. There are entire philosophies. There's people who think they've just created a way of living that gives them contentment that is Satan giving them contentment because that's all he needs to do. And it even happens within the church. But no fear because all of it, all the misrepresented truth, all the twisting that Satan can throw, all of it is doomed to pass away. And it is impossible to know God by any of those means. Verse 16 for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. In order to do that, we would, we would need our minds renewed or something like that. We would need, you know, God to become a man, possess a human mind, and then somehow give us that mind by some supernatural work or something like that. It's impossible to know the mind of God, but we, the believers, have the mind of Christ. It's incredible. 
It's incredible. I want to take a moment to consider what it looks like to be led by the Spirit in this way by looking at what Jesus taught his disciples. This is, just, this is John 16. This is just before he is to be crucified. He's in the upper room doing all kinds of stuff, washing feet, having communion, breaking bread with the boys. But there's a somberness. There's a heaviness about the evening because Jesus knows what's coming. And he's trying to prepare them in every way for what's coming, but they can't comprehend it. Why? Because they don't have the Spirit. They don't understand exactly what he's trying to say yet. He's going to have to die, be resurrected, ascend so the Spirit can come. And he's trying to explain to them that's what's going to happen, and not just for their benefit, but also for ours. That's why John records it in John 16. In verse 7 through 11, we see a good picture of what the Spirit does to help us in our understanding. Nevertheless, I tell you, this is Jesus speaking, the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Verse 8, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So that's what he's going to do. He's going to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And a fleshing out of that, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. A little unpacking to help us comprehend this a little better. This isn't all the Spirit does, but this is how the Spirit leads us in right belief. Verse 9, verse, so verse 8 gives us the overview. Verse 9 makes it about sin. Concerning sin, the conviction concerning sin is about unbelief. So the problem is our unbelief. Even as believers, we struggle with unbelief. So we're dependent on the Spirit to bring that unbelief into the light so that by the grace of God, through the work of His Spirit and because of the person work of Christ, our God is rich in mercy, great in love. He's given us sinners faith. That's Ephesians 2. In verse 10, concerning, concerning righteousness, he says he's going to the Father. He's no longer going to be with us. So we don't have Jesus here in the flesh to watch to see what righteousness is. Rather, the Spirit comes and give us un- give, to give us understanding and conviction so that we can know what righteousness is. And in verse 11, concerning judgment, we see that in Christ we are no longer condemned under under the judgment of the Lord, who is right to judge us. We are no longer condemned. That's Romans 8.1. Rather, Satan, the ruler of this world, is judged. He, the one shaming you right now, is going to be judged and doomed and condemned. We're no longer condemned. So the Spirit helps us in that we can have faith, that our sin and our unbelief is dealt with. The Spirit helps us and that we can live righteously. It means we fight for what's right and we fight to live in righteous ways by the work of the Spirit. And we know we're no longer condemned. So we live in freedom to proclaim this truth to a world that desperately needs to hear this truth. And this is part of this ongoing work the Spirit does in our growing in maturity. So back to that first verse we read, in the growing in maturity, the wisdom is for the mature. In our growing in maturity, there's this sense in which we're never going to arrive. We're always growing. There's always ways in which we need to mature. So there's categories to it as well. 
We're always maturing in every category we're maturing. Every person is added to this body can be mature in a different way and it makes us more complete. No one's mature in every way. Otherwise, you would be Jesus and you're not. So, so rather than thinking you're mature, boasting in your maturity, add it to the body so that we can be more mature corporately and, and honor and glory to Christ by the work of the Spirit. And we build one another up. That's Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. We build one another up to maturity. And we have this mind of Christ. Amen. All right, I wrote out, this might be a little different, a little weird, but I wrote out a summary of the sermon as a, as a way of reflecting. And I want you to take on whatever posture you, want, you need to take on. Um, and the band, if you can come back up, I want to try to eliminate distractions so if you need to close your eyes or stand up or go to the back of the room, I'm, I'm just going to read this summary as a way of preparing our hearts to respond to the gospel. I don't know what you specifically need this morning, but I know that you need the gospel. I know that the Spirit knows precisely where your unbelief is. I know the Spirit knows the mind of the Lord, and I know that we as believers have the mind of Christ. So all of that considered, let's go to God through the personal work of Christ, faith centered on the cross of Christ, trusting the Spirit, depending on the Spirit to move and work in every way we need Him to move and work, to grow us as individuals into maturity, and to grow us as one body with Christ as our head so that we can be about the work of our Lord. So let's hear this for whatever it's worth. Our ability to know God, to understand His ways, to faithfully follow Him and help others do the same does not belong to any human as a component of his or her being. The distance is too great and our self-centeredness is too deep. There's nothing in the wisdom of this age to help us, yet we are too often helplessly dependent on the wisdom of men and infected with the spirit of this world. We sit in our fears and our anxieties. We boast in our knowledge and our wisdom because we are so self-centered that we refuse to believe the truth. In our unbelief, we are profoundly self-focused. So much so that we do not want to know God if knowing Him means we have to relinquish control to the Spirit. We do not want, to, want a God to whom we must confess our rebellion our weakness, our need for mercy and grace because we don't like facing our frailty. Even if we could somehow come to terms with our sinful nature, the wrath that's due to us because of our rebellion, we still would never fathom a creator who would love us so much that would be so gracious as to step in and take the place of each one of us in order to save us from the judgment we deserve. We can never fathom such a thing. More precisely, we can never fathom such a thing if not for the Holy Spirit. The ones who are most mature are not the ones boasting in their knowledge of truth. It's those who are most grateful for the cross and dependent on the Spirit. It's those who return again and again to the cross as the measure of God's love 
standard for our self-denial, and means by which we gain access to everything we truly desire. Maturity is gospel belief. This is profoundly and inextricably tied to the cross. Spiritual maturity is enjoying the gifts of the Spirit as a means of understanding and appropriating the message of the cross. Therefore, gospel saturation is the application of this truth in all of life. Salvation done by the tri-unity of God is expressed in the unity of the church. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your word. We thank you for Christ and we thank you for the spirit. I ask that as we worship you, as we partake in communion, as we give of our tithes and offering, that all of it be done from this place in our heart of worship. Worship of the King who has done everything necessary that we could know you. That we would abandon our insecurities, that we would abandon our anxieties at the altar. Knowing that you have despised shame and with joy pursued the cross. That we could become the righteousness of God. I thank you for this body of believers and the work you're doing currently and will continue to do in us and through us. That we would be humble We'd submit ourselves to the work of your spirit. That We would trust your spirit to empower us to the mission. We'd see the lost saved for your glory, for your kingdom. And we'd never stop till the day we die. Till we see you face to face, free from sin once and for all. Praise you for all of it. In Jesus' name, amen.